And I think that's a key part of not just the submarine model, but the Navy mm-hmm. model. We give a lot of responsibility to our sailors and our officers pretty early. So I, I think I was 37 when I took command you know, of a you know, ballistic missile, nuclear powered submarine. How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam session. Today's guest is Dave Foreman, founder of Wolfpack Leadership. And Dave provides his clients with over 20 years of firsthand experience at all leadership levels, from line manager to chief executive. And Dave leverages his success and experience as a nuclear submarine captain to accelerate his clients' leadership skills. Captain Dave Foreman, welcome to the Jam Session. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Great to be here with you. Looking forward to the Jam. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I've had a fair number of military leaders on Jam Session, but you are my first submarine captain to come on a Jam Session. I've got a lot of questions of which I know half you probably can't answer for national security reasons, but I'll try to keep it very basic for now. Um, First question I have is, you know, when you joined the Navy, was it your goal to serve on a submarine or did that just happen and evolve over time? It was not my starting goal uh, when I I chose to uh, go to the Naval Academy for college and you're exposed to a lot of different warfare communities there. Uh, Top Gun was a a big hit. So who doesn't like that movie? And I wanted to be a a Navy pilot for quite some time. I actually chose to go on a submarine just to get the experience. And, you know, if I ever make the Navy a career, it's probably my only opportunity to do it while I'm a, a midshipman. And I just really had a great time. It was really neat to see the engineering associated with the submarine. And the thing that really caught my attention compared to the other experiences I I had uh, at at different training times was the quality of the people that were on the submarine, the crew, the camaraderie, the combination of formality when they were on watch with with the the casualness when they were hanging out, when they were not on watch. And it just seemed like the kind of team that I really wanted to be a part of. So I, I started changing my mind and they always try to get enough people to go submarines every year. So they sent me on another little stint for three days. I like that one too. And that was out of Groton, Connecticut, which is miserably cold there. And uh, the cold didn't scare me away. I chose, ended up uh, choosing submarines and the, the rest was history. Wow. Is that how it usually happens? Is it, you know, sailors get kind of like exposed to it? And because like, I got, I got to be honest. I mean, it takes a special breed of people to serve in a submarine. Is, is that fair? I mean, it's not for everyone. It, it does. I mean, I've never, the question I get most often is, are you, are you like, I'd get claustrophobic. Right. And, and we've never had an issue with that. And in, in all my time, uh, five submarines over 20 years, only one sailor, but he never got underway. It was just the first time he got on board, felt a little claustrophobic. And I think he had some other issues going on. So we were able to address that and, and realize submarines were not for him. But other than that, everybody's been fine. And as far as how it evolves, I think so. I mean, we you try to get a good fit, but I've also heard plenty of stories across the Navy and across the services where one person was at lunch one day, so you had to go to the other recruiter. So instead of being in the Navy, you're in the Army. Uh, and, and same thing when you're graduating boot camp, uh, just crazier things have happened. And sometimes you just un- end up there. And I think that's a leadership challenge for anybody is there's some agreement to your, your work environment. You got what you got. It's not forever. And you need to make the most of it. And if you don't like it, then when that commitment is up, that obligation, you can go somewhere else. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. The ability to serve as an officer in the military is a great honor. And, you know, I got to imagine even making comparisons to the 
private sector, you know, the ability to move up in an organization becomes harder and harder and more competitive over time. Is it fair to say that becoming a captain on a submarine is even more competitive or even more highly selective? So off the top of my head, I don't have the exact numbers. Uh, I will say it is competitive. There's a screening process just to get into submarines. Uh, we still, if you've ever heard of Admiral Hyman Rickover, the, the father of the nuclear um, submarine force and the, the nuclear Navy, uh, as it were, he interviewed every candidate, every officer to ensure that that he at the time and now she, uh, we are do have women officers serving in the submarine force and doing a great job. So you have to get past that organization and then uh, pass, pass the admiral. Uh, so that's step one. And then from that point on, uh, your junior officer is what it's called in your first time. Uh, there's a screening process to get to a department head level. That one isn't especially competitive uh, uh, all the time. Uh, but after that, to get from department head to executive officer, the number two, and then to be selected again for captain. So every step along the way, people are being off-ramped, if you will. And we we do get to pick the best of uh, who, who chooses to stay in the Navy. Fair enough. Well, let me ask you this then, uh, as you reflect back, what what was your greatest leadership challenge as a submarine captain? So I, when I look back on that that tour, the uh, two and a half or so uh, years in command, there's really two things that I focused on. And I think in, in any leadership job, you, you come in with some ideas. I had about a year of training because we, we alternate between uh, sea duty for a few years and you go do something ashore. And before you go back to your next level, you have some level of training to ensure that you're prepared. Uh, it's sometimes leadership, sometimes it's engineering, sometimes it's tactics. So I had about a year of training before I got there. And as any, you, you find out you have a job, you're like, oh, I'm going to this company, you probably do some research, find out, talk to some people about how it's going. You come in with some, some preconceived notions on what you're going to do as a leader to change it. Uh, sometimes you can get ahead of yourself and think like you're coming in with a cape and you know, uh, fists on your hips and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this thing and I'm going to turn them around. Uh, so I, I felt that uh, a couple of times and I, I learned that's really not a, the best way to approach it. So in command, I say, hey, I got all these ideas. I've got all this background and training. But there's definitely a period of assessment uh, to find out what the organization actually needs. Uh, it's not the first time that I've turned over from somebody and they say, hey, this is the job here. And, and then they leave and then people tell you what they really think. And not about that person, but they act a certain way until you're in the job and then you're actually in the job and they, they start interacting with you differently. So through that, um, what I noticed uh, was two things. Uh, one was a, a tactical thing that we were working on. And I wanted to give my guys more tools to make it easier to be more effective. Uh, as with anything, you know, the challenging aspects of any job and you have to look at the problem from the worker's point of view. What, you know, I had access to a lot of things as the captain and I needed to not lose sight of the fact that they did not have the same access that I did, like specifically to a laptop. There's one on my desk all the time. The rest of the crew, they have to share. And if you don't have that mindset saying, hey, I'm telling you to read this and go study it and they want to do that, but there's three laptops for 40 guys that's gonna and they're tired and they need to sleep and they got to work out and shower and all this stuff it's probably not going to happen so that was one element of what we did there were other aspects to it was to give them uh, everybody a copy of everything i would ask them to read and and just uh, solve that problem uh for them uh so that that was one and then the other was uh, had to do with our our watch rotation sleep schedule near and dear to everybody's uh, heart in the Navy because we have three watch sections. So your whole life is defined by, by when you stand watch. The rules changed a little bit. We had some new options. My observation 
uh, was that we hadn't optimized how we did that. So through the cycle and really working with my team, it took a couple of months to get their input for them to understand what I was asking for and for me to understand their concerns. We came up with a new schedule. We tried it out kind of together. You know, it met my expectations. It met their expectations. And then everybody loved it. I took a survey afterwards and like 95% of my crew liked it. That was the best watch rotation that they ever had. And that only could have been accomplished through the iterative like teamwork of, of, of getting their input and, and also but maintaining standards that I needed to achieve for them for training and readiness and tactical proficiency and so on. So what's interesting is, you know, sounds like some of the, the, some of the changes you made was based on getting input from your, from your sailors. All right. 100%. I would sometimes ask myself that I'm not just there to make my crew happy. Like we all, we have a job to do. That's clear. Yeah. It, it, in, in my organization, the job was very clear to everybody and I didn't need to explain it a whole lot. It didn't change often. I mean, the, the nuances of time and schedule might change, but, but the core thing of what we did was the same and they knew it. And I, I, would, I would talk that up and explain to them why it was so important and so on. But that part was relatively easy. I, I wasn't there just to make them uh, happy and I would take input. Obviously, I would get orders and things would change and, and we would translate that to them. So you're getting the job done, but I felt that that's the given. You could be a bad leader and still get the job done in the short period of time, in the short term, because people will just listen and they might complain or whatever. But over time, they'll choose not to stay with your organization and leave. In my sense, they could not, not re-enlist in the Navy and that's not good. We want them to stay in. We need to maintain our numbers and grow that experience. Um, they could, you know, you, you could have bad things happen like we're mental health and, and, and lose them too, too soon and, and other things can happen. So, so to, to be a good leader, you need to be able to get the job done. That's a given. The challenge is then making it enjoyable, making it effective in the long term, such that the organization is, is better off and on a good trajectory when you leave, which in, in my case, you absolutely know is going to happen that I'm, I'm not going to be there for 10 years or something like that. Is that one of the, the bigger challenges on a submarine? Just, the sheer nature of the environment, basically in terms of keeping everyone engaged or even retention. Is that a, because uh, I heard you just mention that in terms of keeping people engaged. Is that a bigger challenge, at least on, on a submarine? It, it definitely can be. So I think you need to look for the opportunities to make it enjoyable and and make it a place that they want to come back to. So mm -hmm. where, wherever you are, you, you have different tools. Um, especially now with COVID and a lot of people still not getting together in their full capacity, but you need to be creative and, and do what you can. And it can be done by asking them and, and your own observation, what makes this a fun place to work and fun doesn't need to be like high school toddler kind of fun, right? Just, just, just enjoyable. Like it's, if it's, if it's consistency that your workforce is looking for, if it's change and not doing everything the same way all the time, if they get bored, depending on the age of your workforce, uh, stuff like that. So for me, it, it was, uh, grown, you know, coming up through the, the ranks. It, it's really cool to do a swim call off of a submarine. So middle of the ocean, no other ships around. You just get to stop nice, calm sea state and you get to jump in the water next to the submarine and realize that there's thousands and thousands of feet underneath you. It's just cool. Uh, so I had the opportunity to do that a couple of times. We hadn't done it in a long time. For me, it was a priority because we had the opportunity. If we didn't have the opportunity. We didn't have it. But but if we had it and I took it and that, that that was a big boost in morale, all that stuff I talked about, the camaraderie. Hey, this is cool. Uh, that word gets around and that lasts a while. They don't, they don't forget about that. When they, when they, they, they get that kind of life experience with their organization, they get to do neat stuff and they want to stick around. Yeah. That's a pretty cool experience. 
But you know, it's interesting is a lot of things you just said, making the workplace enjoyable. Those are things that just apply everywhere, regardless of right? military or, and I think there's a, this comes up a lot. And I ask this question a lot too, whenever I have military leaders on, you know, I think there's a big misperception out there on leading the military and leading in the private sector where, and just curious to get your thoughts. To me, it just seems like there's a lot more similarities when it comes to the fundamentals than people realize. Is that fair? I agree with you. Um, as we mentioned before we started talking here officially, uh, that they don't come in and, and become robots and uh, automatons okay. or anything like that. So they're people that were, were civilians. They made a decision to come into the military and there are some adjustments to the culture, sure. But but they, they go home a lot that for those that have families are not in the military. Sometimes they are. You got dual military couple, but majority are not. Uh, so, and they're not going to stick around forever. Maybe they're in the Navy for a few years and they want to go to college and then they want to use it as a stepping stone to, to something else. So I do agree with you. I, I viewed it as there, there are people that are in the Navy, not in that chose to be sailors, not, not sailors from the day one that are that different than civilians or led that differently. I really view that the main difference is my ability to discipline is a, that, that you don't use very often. So it's called captain's mast. We have the uniform code of military justice, if, if that's ever come up before in other talks. But so that doesn't exist uh, in civilian organizations, but you do have other ways that you can correct employees. Uh, but that's that's really it. And and if you're leading well, you don't need to rely on that uh, right. because they won't be doing a lot of things. And you got to you, you handle problems early before it becomes where you would need to employ the, the uniform code of military justice. So uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you that the principles of good leadership, of respect, of mm -hmm. consistency, of setting the right example, of good communication skills, all the same, because regardless of where they are, people are people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So let me ask you, what, what would you say was your, or was your greatest leadership victory? Just hesitant to ask it because I want or to answer that because uh, I, I, I just want to view it that way. I was fortunate to have a really good team. Uh, as I said, you come in with the cape and the, the fists on your hips and right. and it's it's just not one person can only do so much. You know, I picked the, the Wolfpack name to because that, that codifies a little bit of how I approach leadership. So within the last decade or so within the Navy, the, the concept of a leadership triad has really blossomed and gotten a lot more. I mean, it's in a lot of the messages that we we get about leadership. We go to a two-week leadership school, kind of focus solely on that, a little bit on us, but how to make the leadership triad work. So what that is, is, is the, the, the person in charge, man or woman, the captain, the number two, the executive officer who's on their way to become captain one day, hopefully, if you mentor them and they compete and get selected and all that. But it's also the senior enlisted person, uh, also a man or a woman, but representing your enlisted force. So your whole frontline workforce. And if it works well, which it was important to me that it did. So you have to make sure that it works well, even if you got to give a little bit I and mean, you're, you're still the captain. Everybody knows that. But you need to make that leadership uh, triangle work uh, so you can approach problems from different angles get better solutions and really make sure that you, it's, it's a free sounding board with the XO. Maybe you ask for a recommendation so that you get to edit it and maybe steal their good idea. That's fine. It's, it's all for the good of the command, but, but really knowing that how, what you're doing in your ivory tower, because that's easy to forget sometimes at the top, how is that being received by, by the troops, by the people and the rest of the organization that are really doing the work that is critical for you to succeed. So I, I did not stand any watch. 
uh, ever as captain. Uh, I could, I was, I was a day walker. I get to walk around during the day, sleep at night. The rest of my crew was not like that. So they're the ones keeping the boat safe. We were doing our mission. They're the ones operating the equipment, doing it right. And I'm just benefiting from all of their, their hard work, their training, their discipline and trying to me, I'm trying to create the environment where they can continue to thrive and continue to do that and, and not make silly mistakes or purposeful mistakes or anything like that. Slow things down. So as far as the biggest victory, I think we, uh, had won an award, a competitive award that uh, as I was coming into command, so I can't really claim credit for it. And then somebody else got the award a year later. And it's easy when you're at the top where that you can feel like the only place to go is down. Uh, but my second year in command, we, we got that award again. So, so I was able to sustain the environment. We maintained our standards because we do get inspected. That's an important, like absolute standard, but morale didn't go down and everybody wanted to come to my crew. Uh, we we got the job done. They all knew that it wasn't wasn't happy town. It was hard work town. But but that's that's what people want is they don't want to be lazy and never come into work. They want to do a good job. And the time that they're spent on that job, they want it to be for a good reason. And I think we we were able to maintain that uh, a little bit of me, sure. Uh, but but it's really leveraging the other people and allowing them to contribute and creating that environment. So that felt good to be able to basically come back on top top and be able to see that we could do it again. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate your humility, which is definitely coming through as, as you're talking. And I can see how you really are focused on the team, right? And leveraging everything they have to bring to bear. I have to agree. It's easy at times to take over teams when they're struggling and they're at the bottom and, you know, the only place you have to go is, is up, right? It's up, right. Yeah. It's much harder to walk in and take over a high performing team and maintain that. I don't think people realize how difficult that that really is, but it is. Leadership challenges, I mean, come, come in all ways. And that, that's part of that assessment, I think that I was talking about is, is what am I getting into? You can have some plans and you can have, you gotta be you, you have your own leadership style to a degree, but I have seen, and, and I, I was able to, the thing I like about submarines is the amount of mentorship that you get because we're all so close. So I was able to learn from a lot of other department heads and executive officers and captains and, and see all kinds of leadership styles. And one memory I, I clearly have, uh, one other officer, not me, but he he was in command twice. So if, if anything happens to a sitting captain and you need a replacement today, you kind of pull from somebody who just got done because they're still kind of ready to go. And his story was that he was a very different type of leader, that, that he was, call it nice or calm or whatever, in one submarine because that's what that submarine needed. And to succeed. And he had other people there that could do other elements of the command leadership that that triad that I spoke of. He could play that role and the, the, the submarine could still succeed. The second submarine that he went back to, different people, different needs. They were in a very different performance level, if you will. We talked about top and bottom. Mm -hmm. And so he he brought out the personality that that they needed to to get back on top. And that that involved a, a, maybe some more yelling. A lot more, a lot more direction. And, and that's because that's what they needed because they didn't have that. And so he had to provide it. So, so that's, uh, I think that that assessment piece is key and that I, I had that lesson before my executive officer tour. So that's why I was kind of open to it and, and coming in and saying, what do we have here? Who do we have? What do we need? And we're in this puzzle that everybody kind of needs to have these, all these things going on. Where's the missing piece and, and where do I need to fill in? And that, that's, that's critical when you show up to a new organization. I think one of the crucial leadership skills is the ability to walk in, really assess and diagnose the team, where they are and what they need, 
and have the ability to bring a different leadership style depending on what's needed for that team, which not many leaders can do. They know how to approach things a certain way and 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 that's it. But it is very situational at times, depending on what the team needs and what the individuals on the team need. So you're right. It definitely not one size fits all. Uh, one little difference in the military civilian world is you could be there for three weeks and say, you know what, this just isn't working and then maybe go right. somewhere else. So that, that could happen, but it, it would be detrimental to your career in the military and you probably need to stick it out. I'm a fan of that, that, that in an organization that size, you ought to be able to stick it out. I, I did have some people working for me that didn't perform so well. And, and I could have tried to fire them, but that, that kind of causes a ripple in, in everything. Sure. Uh, taking somebody was going to maybe go to another port and move his family to Norfolk. And now he's got to come to Kings Bay, Georgia instead, because I chose to fire somebody. And, uh, you know, did I really need to do that? That kind of thing. So you gotta, you gotta play the, the hand that you're dealt and, and cover it down for those people. But when you're at the top and you're, so he was a leader, but when you're the leader, um, the being in the number two spot as executive officer or the captain, it's, it's harder there if you're really not fitting the organization. But then again, we've, a, a lot of vetting has happened to get you to that point. And, mm. and the, the likelihood of that happening is very low. There was something, I just want to go back to something you said before, I think is oftentimes lacking. It's something that I'm a huge believer in. And I try to uh, influence a lot of my clients on the concept of, and the value of using mentors. And it sounds like that was a big, a big piece of the development plan in terms of developing junior leaders into senior leader positions or moving up to the ranks. Sounds like there was a lot of effort and investment put into mentorships. So absolutely. And I think that's a key part of not just the submarine model, but the Navy mm -hmm. model. We give a lot of responsibility to our sailors and our officers pretty early. So I've I think I was 37 when I took command, you know, of a you know ballistic missile, nuclear powered submarine, right. you know, nuclear weapons, that kind of stuff. And there were a couple of times I was in command that you'd have guests show up, maybe somebody would bring their family member. They said, you're the captain. Like I was expecting somebody older. You know, I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a full uh, beard, kind of like you do, Rob. It looks good, you know, distinguished. Yeah. And you know, I'm not smoking a cord cob pipe or whatever image yeah. they had in their head. Respecting so my, Sean Connery from like the hunt from Red October or something. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you do get that responsibility early. And and in order for that to work, you, you can't just show up. Uh, one example, we, we do have the, the reserve, Navy reserve system. And but none of those folks ever serve on submarines because you got to that's too far. It's not enough participation, if you will. You need to spend the time at sea at each level and and grow in that. And so in each time you, you get you get the exposure to the decision making, the leadership, the stress level, how they manage their time. Uh, their their health, their family, all those things. And, and you get to see a lot of it. So there's a, about 17 to 18, 19 officers in the wardroom. We have all of our meals together. So a lot of time to compare notes on what's going on. Sometimes you just chat about personal stuff, but plenty of time you chat about your sailors and who's new to the division and how are they doing and they're not performing and how are you going to lead them? How are you going to get them to start contributing? And so it's the same challenges in a civilian workplace but you don't get all those structured meals and all that, like you, you have nowhere to go. You're stuck on the submarine. So you, by proximity alone, you get to see what's happening. You, you hear what's going on. Hey, I just talked to so-and-so and 
now he or she's doing this way, you know, better or worse, or, you know, something else happens and everybody's talking about it, not in a gossipy kind of way, but just exposure and, and where all that could be happening on a multi-story just distributed workforce. And, and it's just a shame that you don't get to benefit from all those other lessons going on around you. And that's how you're ready for the type of responsibility we give to our officers is because you're, you're immersed in it for years before it's your turn, so to speak. When I work with organizations, and it's not just one, as I say this, I just want to clarify, it's not you know indicative of just one particular industry. In general, across the board and organizations, most people get promoted because of their technical skills, with rarely the thought of the leadership component. And in most cases, the leadership, training, mentorship, whatever you want to call it, is rarely provided which is unfortunate, right? And and I've been immersed with so many different leadership skills over the years and concepts. And this is the reason why I love bringing on military leaders because a lot of these modern day concepts are really the same concepts, techniques, beliefs that have been incorporated in military for over 200 years and they work. And the investment in the mentoring, the development of individuals by far is the best chance for success in grooming our future leaders. And yet rarely, is that type of investment provided? So I agree with you. I think for one one reason, unfortunately, is that you, it, it doesn't make any money in and of itself, not directly. Uh-huh. Uh, certainly, it could deal with with retention and efficiency and and their ability to stay with the organization and, and move up. Uh, you want to, you know, if you have somebody that understands your culture and has that technical capability and whatever it is that you do, you know, why wouldn't you want to keep them around and and put them at the next level? if they have the leadership capability to do that. So I, I have seen that as well. Uh, you know, where I work now with, with both the military and, and civilians, uh, you, you, you do see it a lot. Like they have a, a technical expertise, they are promoted in a, in a, to a higher management position and they, they just don't do a great job in, in handling their people, developing their people. Uh, and it's a shame, so that's why I'm, I like to help too. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the, to help them bridge that gap. And I think that's exactly what happens is it starts out technical. And, and at some point you need to, you, you understand that. And because you excelled there, that you, you move up and, and uh, but it's still uh, the people matter more. Well, let me ask you just uh, one more question here. You know, you obviously have a, a lot of experience, you know, leadership experience and, uh, and you work with, with, you know, organizations as well. I have a lot of new leaders, emerging leaders who want to become leaders who listen in. What advice would you give a new leader if there's if there was one thing that that they should do and do well? What would be that one thing that comes to mind? Uh, I'm, I'm I'm laughing and pausing here if I I can curse or not, but um, of go for uh, it. Why it, not? It, sure, <laughs> it, it was from a civilian organization I work with, and they they it was a startup, and it, it was simple: don't be an asshole. There yeah. you go. Uh, so the reason I say that I'll expand a little bit. It's not that quite that simple is, is uh, that, that assessment that I talked about in the beginning, while very important, but it never really ends. The market's not standing still. Your organization's not standing still. So it's always, how are things going? What is around the next corner? And to, to do well and exceed, you have to be able to anticipate a little bit. And the only way you're going to do that is if you're getting good input and from your employees. And if you're an asshole, you're not going to get that input. So uh, you know, being the CEO, being the boss, whatever, people don't, If depending on your personality, they're not all going to just come knock on your door. Hey, I heard this. Hey, have you thought about that? Hey, did you realize this was happening? You're going to have to work to get that information. And if you're a jerk, that's you're, you're, you're cutting off those channels. So you want to make yourself approachable. And that, that's a big part of just the overall culture of the organization. But it's, it's so that you can know what's going on and stay in touch with your organization. 
I, I think of the the train and, and the, the links on a, um, a train and the, you don't want them to, to break, you know, you got the locomotive and you're pulling hard, but obviously if you, if you separate from the rest of the train, you're, you're not, you're not going anywhere. You're not doing your job. So that's how you have to keep those, those links strong. Everybody's moving together. Don't be a jerk. So they actually talk to you when you ask a question and want the real answer, they will tell you and they won't freak out that you're going to bite their head off. I think that's very practical and real world advice right there. And usually, and usually that you come across that time and time again, particularly when, when individuals become managers, you get a little taste of that power. And all of a sudden it's like, what happened to you? Who are you? (laughs) Right. Right? Yep. I, I, I agree with you. I've seen it happen. They, they lose sight. And that's the, one of the many leadership challenges is not lose that, that uh, sight of, of, of where you are in the organization and you still put your pants on the same way as you did when you first started, you know, your first job. Captain Dave Foreman, I really appreciate you coming on the jam session and sharing some of your leadership experience with my listeners. And uh, I do want to thank you for your service as well to our great nation. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from it. I'm Rob Fonte. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.